My first contact was May of last year, 1954. I was hurrying to catch the bus to go home in the early evening when I suddenly bumped into the back of a tall man dressed in a brown suit. He stood there for just a few moments, then suddenly disappeared. This was very frightening at first, but I have had the experience several times since, and the same thing has happened. One evening, last August 1954, Brother Baco came to my trailer and told me he would like to take me to the planet Venus. As we went to the door to go out, I saw the most beautiful little illuminous ship sitting in my drive right in back of my car. I had never seen such a gorgeous piece of artwork anywhere. Brother Baco touched the ship and three little steps came out. We immediately went within, only to see the most beautiful white quilted material covering the entire interior of the ship. We sat down, I on Brother Baco's right. We immediately left the earth, and as you folks would know, as I, I was completely overwhelmed at the suddenness of all this. It was very hard to comprehend. Very suddenly, we went into a tailspin, but we arrived on the planet Venus. Hey everybody, what's up? And welcome back for part two of our interview with Greg Bishop and Adam Gorightly about their great book, A is for Adamski. First off, I need to thank Joe from Ozone Nightmare for stepping in at the very last second because Lobo's computer died about 45 minutes before the show or somewhere around there. And uh, Joe stepped in having no idea about the topic or anything we were talking about and said, yeah, sure, I'll come on the show for you and, and see what I can do. Uh, he has to bow out about, I don't know, maybe about halfway through or what have you, but it's still a great episode. I also need to send out a big shout out to Eric Wojciechowski for helping me with uh, kind of giving me a springboard and giving me an idea of, of things to say in the interview or where to take the show or different people to talk about and so forth. So Eric, if you're out there, thank you very much, man. As always, I do appreciate the stuff you help me out with behind the scenes. So in this episode, we pick up, we talk a little bit about uh, Wilhelm Reich and his Oregon accumulator, Lee Childers, uh, a little bit about Molly Thompson, a pretty funny and humorous story about Nick Redfern telling somebody to fuck off at a Christian UFO conference. I've been there. I know what that's like. Um, a little bit about Michael Barton. Um, just generally, when the uh, the um, contactee movement came to a close, maybe what brought it to a close, and what kind of morphed it into a period of going from alien contactees to alien abductions and alien probes and the darker nature that the whole world of ufology kind of went into. So uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy it. If you get a chance, do pick up the book. It is available on Amazon right now. I think it's around $26, which isn't that bad for a coffee book. It's pretty full of information. It's a decent-sized book. It's put together really well. The artwork is great. Uh, our buddy Red Pill Junkie did all the artwork for it. So, yeah, pick it up, give it a look, and uh, let's roll with the interview. I will see you guys, as always, at the other side. I guess let's pick back up with Lee Childers again because I am a Michigan, Michigan boy and I'm from Detroit. And Lee Childers was the baker from Detroit, correct? 
Yes, he was. <laughs> so let's jump into him because, um, as I was saying before the show off air, Michigan, especially the lower half, has got, has got such a rich history of way back when the UFO stuff started, like the swamp gas stuff started around here, you know. Um, Michigan had all of these UFO clubs and all these interesting characters that came out of it that were intertwined with this golden era of ufology. So uh, which one of you guys had Lee? Was that you, Adam? I had Lee. Um, yeah, you were talking about the Detroit Saucer Club, and I don't know if uh, Childers was really uh, a part of that. He might have intersected with them, but he was on his own uh, path of weirdness. <laughs> um, <laughs> As are we he, all. Yes. He, uh, I'm looking at the... Uh, entry here uh, he claimed he had the record for uh, space voyages what what was the number he's <laughs> a record keeper for this stuff <laughs> well he he's the record keeper <laughs> he claimed uh, who who took him around was an extraterrestrial commander named marco san one of those interesting names you can, sounds kind of italian there but uh what do you say here? He traveled the the ship. One of the ships he was on traveled at the astounding speed of two hundred and fifty thousand miles an hour, which is that might be a record too. One of the funny stories <laughs> is that uh, on this uh, one that traveled two hundred and fifty thousand miles an hour, Childers became so uh, space sick that one of the uh, crew members had to hold him out a porthole so he could throw up. <laughs> <laughs> that's how unbelievable these okay here here's the number uh childers said he was taken on 21 trips which he claimed was a record but then i've heard other contactees claim they went on hundreds of trips so we'll call bullshit on that uh, <laughs> Just, just so, that, though. Everybody else is legitimate. <laughs> he, uh, let's see. There is a saucer club he was associated with called the Bureau of UFO Research and Analysis, Bufora. Uh, hey, so who where have we heard that before? Yeah, that name has been around for other groups. but he British uh, UFO Research uh, Association. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he held a press conference in 1958. And, uh, yeah, he, he claimed at that time that he was a 250-year-old interplanetary traveler known as uh, Prince Neosum from the royal family of planet uh, Tithan, wherever that's located. And apparently he had uh, left his wife and was now with a uh, lady called Beth Docker, who uh, took the name of later on of, as Princess Nigona. So Prince Neosum and Princess Nigona. Apparently, yeah, somebody's telling me that uh, Prince Neosum later became King Neosum, but I haven't been able to uh, confirm that. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> so anyway, Child Childers was making a buzz. He claimed that he had some rejuvenation uh, machine that had brought him back from death on three separate occasions when, like, Men in Black or something had killed him. That was part of this press conference. And he went on. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just 
you know, stating what it, the <laughs> propaganda he was putting out there, not being a judge of this. <laughs> and so he went on the Long John Nebel show and predicted that a fleet of flying saucers were going to show up and they'd rebroadcast the program to uh, cr- uh, across the whole world using, you know, s- some type of saucer technology. The saucers never showed up, and uh, it was just what? a few minutes. No, they never showed up. And a few minutes into the show, uh, Long John Nebel, who in the history of the show never kicked, had kicked off any uh, contactees or kooks, uh, he kicked off Prince Neosum and his. He had a. It was Beth Docker and another woman that he gave him the boots just because it was, <laughs> this guy was so outlandish. Um, and the closing uh, paragraph in the book says, even George Van Tassel, who hardly ever had a harsh word for his fellow contactees, harsh word for his fellow contactees, denounced Childers as a fraud on the grounds that he had bad teeth, something Van Tassel considered an impossibility for someone purported to be a true interplanetary traveler. Yeah, he's not smiling in either of the pictures that we put up there. He's like, like purposely got his mouth closed. Although his uh-huh. girlfriend is has really nice teeth, so she probably yeah, was she's... from. Uh... What year did he pass on? Uh, where the best the... part about that, by the way, is that it suggests that the story was airtight until it came to dental hygiene. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, can you go ahead? That's a good point. Uh, I have his. Uh... Birth is 1922, and his death as 1982. And uh, I was pretty good tracking down a lot of these uh, deaths, but I think uh, I'm not 100% positive. I just put 82 in there because I did find somebody named Lee Childers in the right part of the country who uh, died and with somebody whose teeth were as poor as that I could see him living <laughs> 60 years teeth, teeth are an indication of one's overall health yeah well if, if you don't have the proper thetans in you that's uh, that that's what's going to happen you know if you have oh that's a whole that's a whole nother contactee probably <laughs> the most famous contactee of all but he never said he contacted anybody he just said that he you know Hubbard said that he like channeled this shit. Yeah. Yeah. But that's yeah. But how many other of these contactees were channelers? That was another reoccurring theme you would have with this is uh, actually Greg, the one that you were talking about before the show, Molly Thompson, she was a channeler as well. Wasn't she? Um, she said that she got messages from space people in the beginning. She said that um, when, when she wrote her songs, she said that they were they were um, the the implication is was that she was in uh, had had uh, contacts and that she wrote these songs based on the contacts and then much many years later um, she wrote a a response on the internet to somebody and she said that um, um, let me see if I can find her book oh yeah from Molly Thompson. Uh, I'm still alive and here, and if not kicking, at least the motor is still turning over. This was 2008, so this was 10 years ago. I don't even know if she's still alive. Um, no, she, you know what? She isn't, but I can fill you in on that in, uh, when you're Oh, okay, there. okay. I'm sure you've guessed by now that I never actually met and spoke with flesh and blood space people in silver suits who had arrived in their vehicles flying saucers or UFOs. Um, so she 
uh, like some of the other contactees, notably, notably Orfeo Angelucci actually later said that um, he had uh, he had he had uh, had visions and the, the stuff that actually hadn't happened to him uh, for real. Um, Molly Thompson was uh, I love Molly Thompson because she made music. And as you know, I, I'm into weird music. And, you know, if you can combine weird music with UFO contactees, you yeah, I, you got me. I mean, that, 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 what the hell other hook do you need? Um, Molly, <laughs> yeah, for me anyway. Um, so she, she uh, in the early, she's British. She was British. In the early 50s, she read Flying Saucers of Landed by Adamski and said, oh, okay, that's, you know, this is, uh, this is something I'm really interested in. Um, she said, it spoke to me. It tweaked the nerve I couldn't resist. She actually, um, she used a Ouija board like, uh, like Williamson did. Uh, to contact entities with names such as Ornur, Lon, and Philemon. Um, in 1963, she actually heard that uh, uh, Adamsey was going to be staying at Desmond Leslie's house. Desmond Leslie was the uh, uh, ghost writer, well, not ghost writer, his name's right on the cover of Flying Saucers of Landed, uh, Adamsky's first book. So her and her friend um, uh, somehow made it to London from wherever they were. I guess it was a a little distance for them to travel on not much money. They knocked on the door and they just walked right in and, and met Adamski. And Adamski told her that the sprays, the brothers have work for you. Um, so in, um, she's, she started, uh, uh, she was a secretary of a, a, a saucer, uh, saucer club in 1959. And in, um, uh, when was her album in 1965, she had, put together a whole bunch of songs inspired by the space brothers, she said, and, and, uh, record and, um, a, uh, new age figure with some money in England, um, got her, what's his name? Something Brooke. You got to read it in the book. Sir Anthony, <laughs> new age guru, Sir Anthony Brooke, um, uh, gave her money. So she'd go in a studio and with her guitar and record these songs which are amazing. I mean, I listen to the songs and I start crying. I love them so much. Oh God. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's just, it, it really? like I said about the, the honesty thing. It's just like, she said, the space brothers told her this. She said, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to write these songs. I'm going to walk in the studio. I'm going to record these songs. And she did put out an album called from worlds afar, which I have a copy of on vinyl from night from the 19, the 1964 album. Um, Another cool thing I found out um, in research for the book was that, uh, yeah, it was released in 1966. Um, so in 1966, she was actually invited to one of Gabriel Green, who's another one of the uh, contactees, a famous contactee, uh, one of his conventions. He had conventions in um, usually in L.A., but this was one uh, in Reno. Uh, and Adam, I think, found a uh, schedule from that convention that lists her as the lunchtime entertainment. So she would actually sit there with her guitar for like 10 minutes at a stretch during lunch and breaks and sing her Space Brothers songs. Um, there's a film, I think, called... Oh, do you know, remember the name of the film, Adam? Uh, no, I don't, but I have but, seen uh, that film. Yeah, yeah, you can find it on YouTube. Um, there's actually film of her playing the guitar and singing her song, Cockeyed Ballad. The funny thing is at the end of that convention, uh, she was going to fly back to England. I guess they flew her out there for the convention. Very nice. Um, at the end of that convention, there was a there was a British 
like uh, airplane airline strike, and she couldn't make it back. She couldn't fly back to England. So she basically couch surfed around the United States for like almost a year, um, visiting UFO researchers and other contactees, and staying like basically staying on their couch until she could get back to England. Um, she didn't write about that period, but uh, I found that out from an uh, article by Andy Roberts, which you can find online. Um, it's called uh, "From Worlds Afar: The Molly Thompson Story." Uh, no, no, no. Was she still having contact with the aliens at this point? Uh, she said she did, but then you know, sometime like in 2008, when she wrote this little uh, bit, I think on the WFMU website, um, she said that uh, no, I you know I didn't actually ever meet any real space people. Um, I think when she wrote the the song, she either believed she did or, um, you know, way in the back of her mind, she probably knew she didn't, but she figured it was okay. And this is what I think about a lot of contactees. The fact that they were inspired in such a way, they were by what they said were Space Brothers, was good enough for them. To them, that was reality, <laughs> which is kind of, <laughs> kind of what's going on now with a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, but at, at that time, I think it was obviously it was a lot more innocent and well-meaning, you know, kind of like, let's stop making bombs. Let's all love each other. Let's, you know, it was hippies before hippies. That's another question I wanted to ask you. All of these messages that were talked about in this time period were, um, were positive messages that, did any of these aliens have any kind of negative or ill intent messages or harmful messages, or was it always like, just love one another, don't destroy each other, stop doing what you're doing. You know, that kind of stuff. I don't know. Adam uh, might know. To me, they're all, as far as I know, they were positive. Let me put a book into Molly Thompson first. Please. Um, Did I miss something? Oh, no. Well, this is something I think I shared with you, but uh, it's not something that ended up in the book. And maybe you forgot or maybe I never told you. Who knows? Um, so Andy Roberts, the, the Andy Roberts is the guy who wrote a lot of the stuff. Uh, he was a source for uh, Greg there, Greg, and uh, for the book. And uh, he's a British guy. He's written for Fortean Times and uh, other things. Anyway, he wrote a pretty cool book with another fellow called Yeah David Clark and Andy Roberts. Yeah. Wrote a book called Flying Saucerers, which a social history of ufology, and they covered Molly Thompson in there. And um, there was a photo of uh, Molly. He did a 40 in Times piece. So, you know, I'm pretty obsessive about getting uh, photos of all these contactees. I contacted Andy about that. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll hook you up with the uh, photo. And hey, check out my book, Flying Saucerers. So, I found one copy on uh, Amazon for a reasonable price, ordered it, and uh, inside the book I saw Andy had signed it to uh, Molly Thompson. Yeah, you did tell me this. Yeah, it was – so uh, – and I let Andy know that. He goes, oh, wow, she must have died. So I, we think uh, Molly probably uh, probably died here within the last uh, 10 years or so. Anyway, a little synchronicity there. Yeah, there, there's some. Uh, there, there was a, uh, you know, uh, some of the evil ETs show up in uh, some of the contactee literature. Um, off the top of my head, there's like uh, Michael X was one of the uh, 
guys who had uh, kind of a negative influence in uh, some of his uh, encounters. Uh, Michael X, uh, his name was, uh, God, I need to look at the passage uh, in the book. Uh, Hang on a second here. I never remember anything I write. (laughs) There he is. His name was Michael Barton. And uh, he got inspired by, uh, he went out to Giant Rock and uh, got inspired by George Van Tassel, which a lot of these people did. It was like uh, Adamski was a big uh, inspiration for folks, and so was uh, George Van Tassel. And so, you know, uh, this Michael Michael uh, Barton had his own uh, Venusian experience, and he appears he contacted these entities via telepathy or what did he call it here he said uh, telethought via telethought he uh, established a dialogue in a book he called flying saucers revelations in 1957 but then he got into the darker uh, side of ufology and he wrote the first book on the whole Hitler and flying saucer connections, and it was called We Want You as Hitler Alive, which was in 1969. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that informs what was that movie? The uh, Iron Sky, that, yeah, that wacko Iron Sky is kind of along those lines. They're making another one, saw... <laughs> <laughs> they are, they really are. Like, They're making another one. <laughs> I like the first one, but in the uh, like in the 70s, I used to go into uh, a local uh, supermarket and drugstores, and you'd see a lot of these uh, tabloid things, and you'd see these Hitler flying saucers. He had a fleet of flying saucers in Antarctica. Oh, yeah, they used to have a model. Um, Ravel made a model of it for a while, and then I think wow. they re-released it last year, but they had to pull it back off of the market. Because there was swastikas on it, and there's parts of Europe where yeah. swastikas are illegal, so they they pulled it back off the market. I recall last year there's a there's um like a like a like a dollar store kind of place down the road from me, like a family dollar kind of place. It's not, but they had the kit there, and I went back to get it a week later, and it was gone. And I was so bummed that no. I didn't get it. Yeah, and I don't I don't think they pulled it off the shelf because of that. I think it was. That somebody bought it. Some yeah, somebody bought it because it was it was big news all over the net. Well, how they had to pull it back off the market yeah. again. But I think well, it was I a reprint. Have, I still have a Ravel Area Fifty One Bob Lazar saucer shrink wrapped still. Really, yeah, really? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I've I got the uh, I've got the Jupiter Two downstairs. <laughs> I've got that one built, and there's another one that I got too, but I can't remember which one it is. Um, I never welcome 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 to Geek Talk. Oh yeah. <laughs> You're in good company for that. <laughs> yeah, I got the original that's still in the shrink wrap, guys. Well, we've already covered our, the love for Dick, so we might as well keep going with that theme. But, um, giggity. Anyways, go ahead. You were saying? Well, let me uh, close out. Uh, I'll be lazy here, and let me read uh, the passage, which leads us to the dark side. But, yeah, it looks like Michael – he was Michael Barton, but he started using the um, – handle of Michael X and he was I wouldn't call him so much books but you know like uh, pamphlets he was putting out on all of these topics and according to my friend uh, Tim Beckley he was really the first one that uh, uh, wrote about this Nazi UFO uh, angle and so you know we talked about telethon 
thought and talking with the uh, Venusians. So he'd go into a meditative state, and uh, I'll read from the book here. During one of his meditations, Barton received a mental message to meet at a secluded spot. I go to the next page in the Mojave Desert for a face-to-face with his otherworldly contacts so they could lay some, quote, important information on him. And after arriving at the desert rendezvous point, uh, Barton sat waiting in his car when he noticed a glint of something in the distance and assumed it was an E.T. saucer arriving. As he walked toward the object, a sudden sense of dread overtook him, and an inner voice instructed him to retreat post-haste. Just before he turned around to hightail it, Barton caught a glimpse of someone partially concealed in the underbrush lowering a rifle, which he now realized was the object that had glimmered in the sunlight. Afterwards, Barton speculated that some Illuminati-like secret society had somehow hijacked his telepathic transmission transmissions to order in order to set up an ambush. Not long after, Barton left ufology in fear of his life to become a UPS driver, which I thought was a little good little uh, <laughs> tidbit. In the early 2000s, uh, Tim Beckley, our friend, tracked down Barton about republishing some of his old uh, books, and Barton consented with the caveat that his Nazi UFO titles be excluded from the mix. To this end, it could be speculated that the perceived threat against his life, which prompted Barton's sudden ufological departure, was somehow related to Hitler's flying saucers in Antarctica. The Nazi bell, that's probably what he's making reference to. There you have it. But there's there's other dark sides in the... uh, contactee movement for one trevor james uh, constable who's kind of connected to william uh, wilhelm reich maybe gray can talk about reich a little bit but uh uh constable was in contact with uh, what he called the Ethereans, who were f- like from another dimension or whatever, but he also talked about the dark ones that were in competition with the Ethereans. So that you know, there were a number of contactees. George Hunt Williamson talked about a battle of good and evil, and you've seen that through ufology from the contactees to more, uh, you know. At the abductee uh, period, that there are some good aliens and bad aliens. The uh, uh, can't cite some specific examples, but yeah, the reptilians and greys were the evil ones. But then there's also some good guy uh, aliens involved in the uh, battle for uh, our souls. Yeah, because at one point. It was just like the Venusians, and then it kind of migrated to, there was one point where there was like, what, 36 different species of aliens out there. There was crystalline ones, <laughs> yeah. there was like, like uh, locust, like grasshopper ones of some kind or another, gaseous, uh, you know, different ones along along those lines as well. But that was yeah, kind of at the tail have, end of have, it. Those have all been documented, too. Okay. But doesn't this stuff kind of by and large, like a lot <laughs> I, of joking. this stuff, doesn't it, doesn't it sort of follow the, the general mood of the kind of everybody as far as the sixties were hopeful and love and all that stuff. And so this, this yeah. stuff kind of followed that and then it turned dark when everything got bitter and mean and everything else. Uh, um, 
yes, I would say. <laughs> Very simplistically, it's more complicated than that. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, that, I was going to say, because a lot of this stuff has always felt like to me, like most, I mean, I, I'm sure these people actually believe it. And if you believe it, you believe it. But a lot of storytelling, I'll leave it like that. I'm not saying it's true or it doesn't have roots in truth or doesn't. Oh, you're not going to offend anybody. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, well, I'm just, I'm just leaving the door open. I don't want to be one of those people who's like, if you believe this, you've got your head up your ass. I'm never going to be one of those types. But storytelling in general does seem to ebb and flow with the mood of the culture that is telling the story. So this makes sense that at this time period, when people thought things were going to, you know, that it was post-World War II and all this stuff and, and you know, drugs everywhere, which, you know, when these people are getting messages, it's messages from huffing paint cans half the time, I'm convinced, but whatever, that's fine. And so this stuff does make sense that there was a more optimistic view that these aliens were saying, look, you can, there are ways to make things better. The future is brighter if you just, you know, heed our warnings as opposed to now where it's like, or in the 90s where Independence Day had an alien blowing up the White House in every major city center because, you know, shit went to shit. So it, it does seem like there are flavors to this stuff where whatever is kind of in the zeitgeist is what becomes the major storytelling parts. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that, too. I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> the, uh, the the par the paranoid period of ufology, which probably began sometime in the early 80s, um, I think kind of killed the contactee thing, at least the positive, you know, peace and light, uh, uh, peace, light and unicorns and rainbows thing that it was was before that. Um, after that, the, uh, the contactee movement probably died sometime in the 60s, but but in the 70s and 80s, I think the only people left really were holdouts like the Aetherius Society, um, the uh, who's the people in San Diego? Um, uh, were they? I wrote that entry too. Uh, Aetherius. Um, yeah, the Aetherius Society, the Unarius Society, and um, for that matter, actually the. Uh, I was going to bring them up at some point eventually too because they're still around. Um, we almost. We, we almost got yes. them. Speaking of swastikas. <laughs> well, I ran into them last year. I was at, uh, we've got this big like indoor trade center. It's basically an indoor flea market. It's no longer around. It closed down now. But I went to one last year and it was like, it was this weird combination of spiritualism and craft show. And um, <laughs> the Raelians had a table set up there and I'd always wanted to interview them. I didn't, I, we never want to have anybody on the show to ever laugh at them. Like I don't, it, we don't have people on the show to yell at them for what they're doing. And we also don't have people on the show to laugh at them unless they are in yeah, on the joke. It's just like me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if they're in on the joke, sure. We'll have them on, you know, we'll have them on to have a good time about it. But the Raelians were there and, and uh, I walked by a table and my buddy was with me and we're like, whoa, stop. Let's go talk to these guys. There was also a guy there that um, was talking about uh, UFOs and Nazis and that um, he had a big table set up and he had pieces of rock that were supposedly from Roswell with little UFOs on them and he had all these stacks of DVDs and CDs about uh, UFOs were actually demons and the, and the Nazis made a deal with the demons and that's why the UFOs came through and they got technology from the demons. It was really intense and then and the next booth over is the Raelians. That kind of stuff used to fascinate me. Now I'm just like, Duh! yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Raelians are right smart next move, to this by guy. The way, smart move aligning the Nazis with the devil because who's going to argue pro-Nazi? So you're kind of like, well, yeah. yeah I've exactly. Seen it. Uh, I've seen it at Roswell. A oh, guy no. Started, a guy started I don't doubt Nick that there Redford. are people. But. I was sitting next to Nick Redford, and this guy came up, and he's like, well, you know, he, went, he gradually you start to realize 
and suddenly that something's going on here. Suddenly he says, oh, well, you know, the, the Nazi, the Germans were just defending their homeland against in, uh, invaders in World War II. And Nick looked at me and he said, no, get out of here. He actually, <laughs> I don't know if I, I can I swear on your show. Yeah. Yeah. We've been doing it all night anyway. Go ahead. <laughs> OK. Yeah. His, uh, I was sitting next to Nick and I hear them, you know, this quiet. This was in Roswell two years ago. Uh-huh. Um, I hear this quiet conversation. Then I hear Nick say, no, fuck off. I could totally see Nick saying that no, without a yeah. doubt, without then, a problem. And, yeah. then, and then the guy talks a little louder and Nick says, no, fuck off. And he keeps going. And Nick finally like raised his voice and said, I said, fuck off. And we we're at this convention with all these Christian people because that's oh, who no. invited us. And then, <laughs> I and think I, that before. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the organizer went, shh. <laughs> I wonder um, if it was the same guy. Audience turned around because Nick was. I, I was like, "Do I have to get up and help Nick beat this guy up? What the hell's going on?" The guy like it, backed off and mumbled to o- himself. It's okay to it's okay to say Nazi stuff, but not to, to tell the Nazi to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was quiet at first, and Nick just finally said, "No, I don't want to hear this." Uh, Joe, uh, before we go any further, Joe, you got to log off and take off, don't you? You got to get going or something like that? I do, actually, yes. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, we'll let you go. Thanks for sitting on the show, man. I really appreciate it. And people can find your show at theozonenightmare.com? Just ozonenightmare.com. Actually, I probably have the other domains. I think I covered them all. Sure. Okay. You just Google that. Ozonenightmare.com. Thanks for sitting in. Take care, man. I'll bug you later. Take it easy, man. All right. Nice talking to you guys. Talk to you later. Yeah. All right. Thanks, dude. So, anyways... um, yeah, that's um, you know what? Since we've brought up, uh, since we've gone in the direction of Nazis in Germany and things like that, let's uh, let's talk about uh, Wilhelm Reich and his uh, his argon accumulator, the uh, machine that Orgo. makes it rain. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Well, uh, we only included Wilhelm Reich one, probably because because of, of me saying I want to put Reich in there because um, actually the I said I said that, and he goes. Does Reich belong in here? And I go, well, I don't know, Greg. Maybe he doesn't. Then he said, oh, yeah, maybe he does. And then, yeah. Yeah, because at the, um, he had a book called Contact with Space that was published in sometime in the 50s. Yeah. Anyway, uh, beginning of the book, he, um, in the introduction, he actually said, am I a spaceman? He thought that may- he sort of uh, – Mused about maybe being he was he figured he was such a weirdo that he might be a he might be a hybrid. He didn't call it that, but um, he was born in 1897 uh, in uh, Germany, I believe, Germany or Austria. Uh, he had contacted uh, uh, Freud and became part of kind of Freud's inner circle in the 1920s, um, but then decided that Freud was on the wrong track. And started developing his own theories about um, uh, why people have hangups. And bo- basically, it was except, you know, Freud said hangups were sexual, um, but could be, uh, th- th- those could be cured by, you know, uh, uh, heavy s- uh, sessions of psychotherapy. Um, Reich said no, um, sexual hangups can only be cured by having sex and not being prudish about it. Um, so, uh, that got him kicked out of the, uh, the, the Freudian circle. Plus, he started um, advocating uh, basically proto-communist or communist-type ideas. So that kind of got him in trouble. Um, and in the 
In the 1930s, he saw what was going on. He wasn't Jewish, but he saw what was going on in Germany, and he said, screw this, and he moved to the United States in 1939. Um, uh, during this time, he was developing a theory of something called orgone, which is uh, basically what people think of as like the ether or whatever, um, or the force, actually, from Star Wars. I guess you could call it that, too. Um, something that – an energy that permeated all of, of, uh, of the universe and creation and that uh, – uh, if we could get uh, well-adjusted uh, and get this orgone force flowing through us properly, like chi or whatever, that that would take care of a lot of our problems too. So he developed a, um, a series of uh, devices um, and things that would uh, that supposedly would get this orgone flowing possibly, you know, better through you and, and make you more well-adjusted so you wouldn't have hang-ups and your life would be fulfilled Um I'm not making fun of Reich. I mean, I've, I've, I, I don't know if I believe him, but I, I believe in the basic philosophy of what he said, I guess. I would agree with it. Um, maybe not the, you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't know. Uh, but, um, yeah, the only reason he's included in there is basically because he said that, one, he thought he was might have been a hybrid uh, human with aliens. And two, um, when he lived in uh, Maine, Rangeley, Maine, uh, in the... In 1950, he moved there. He started an um, institute called Organon. Um, and he invented, an, uh, he, he said this all, the, you know, the Organ theory also, uh, he expanded it to uh, uh, the natural world and said, well, if it permeates, if it permeates us and permeates the universe and permeates all of nature, then a bad uh, flow of Organ might be why um, there's certain areas that are, he thought that's what caused deserts, which he thought were bad. I mean, now we know, you know, deserts are probably, they're just part of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But he said, um, he thought that the, in an early version of global warming, he thought that the, um, that if you could get rid of or uh, ameliorate uh, desert environments, um, the planet would be more healthy. Uh, so he invented this thing called the cloud buster, which he said would um, work on the orgone flow of nature. I don't know what you know what people thought of this at the time. Actually, he was persecuted by the FDA for um, using for uh, uh, for fraudulent medical um, devices, mainly the orgone accumulator, which he apparently never charged anybody for, unless they he would charge. They said if it, he said if it worked, you know, pay me the money I charged, and if it you don't think it worked, just send the thing back. Um, but the FDA didn't like that, and they actually came and smashed up stuff in his lab and burned his books. Um, uh, at the behest of the American Medical, Medical Association. That's odd. Uh, book, yes, book burnings happened in the United States in the 1950s, quietly. But they went to his, his lab, smashed everything up, found all books that they said meant the Oregon uh, theory, and took him to an incinerator in New York City and threw him in there. Um, and he was arrested, actually, and in jail uh, by the late 50s and died in 1957 in jail about a month before he was going to be released. The other thing he said that the cloud busters would do was he said that he um, that it would uh, cause UFOs to to uh, destabilize and disappear. He said that here's the evil alien thing. He said that UFOs were causing um, were, were were disrupting the flow of orgone and were uh, were uh, creating something called deadly orgone or DOR. Um, I'm getting very into the story here, but. Uh, no, this, this, this guy's pretty cool. I mean, the story yeah. behind him is pretty cool. Kate Bush actually did a song about him. Um, yes, with 
With uh, Donald Sutherland playing um, in the video, yeah, uh, Wilhelm Reich in the video, yeah. And then later it, on, Utah Saints turned it into a dance song. I don't know why I know this stuff. But go ahead. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, there's a group called Utah Saints. They uh, took that oh, song okh. and they remixed it, and uh, that's where oh, I, I first found that. the original song. I, I heard heard that, and then I found the Kate Bush song afterwards. I'll send you a link to it on Facebook. Just as Any- a side note, I love Kate Bush. She's great. Yeah, me too. Oh, I used to love Kate Bush when I was younger. Anyway, he said that UFOs started appearing on his property in 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 Maine, and he would point the cloudbuster at them, and he said they would like wink out or move out of the way of where he was pointing it. Um, there are news reports. The other thing he said that the cloudbuster would do, which is why it was called the cloudbuster, was to either alleviate or cause rain to happen. Um, and uh, uh, farmers in Maine actually during a drought hired him, and there's a news report from a local Maine paper saying that um, – Reporting that uh, during the middle of a drought, he ran the cloudbuster and it made the rain, and the guys paid him off, and uh, everybody was happy. Um, he also went to Arizona in the 1950s, uh, something called Desert Orop EA, I think he called it. That's what he called UFOs, EA Energy Alpha. Um, he went to the went to the Arizona desert to Tucson and made it rain out there. Apparently, there's weather reports and news reports from the time when he was there right in the middle when it wasn't supposed to be raining. So either the thing worked or he coincidentally was around when rain happened. I don't know which. Um, it's a fascinating story and uh, it's, you know, so uh, hooked into the UFO subject. And plus, you know, the fact that he said that he might be a, a hybrid uh, human. Uh, what did he say? Bread, bread from embraces of spacemen with earth women, I think he said. <laughs> That's a great yes. way to put it. <laughs> yes. So it's a very 1950s uh, proper way to put it. So as the legend goes, the government confiscated his cloudbuster though. Is that is is or is that true or I don't know if they confiscated the cloudbusters. No. I think they 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 basically they didn't even know what the damn things were and you couldn't really, you know, he had one portable one he had on a truck that he drove to uh uh Arizona. But no, what they did they you know confiscated his books, burned those books, and smashed up his lab equipment with hammers. They actually showed up at the at Organon and smashed his lab equipment. I yeah. guess, you know, the, the intent was to suppress or uh, limit his activities with the Organ accumulators, which are yeah. basically, uh, let's see, how are those constructed, Greg? Like I mean, guns. it's... No, well, well, no, that's, we're, talk- that's we're talking about. Okay, yeah, we're okay. talking about two different things. Uh, Orgone accumulators were constructed, but Peter Robbins is way into this. He could tell you all you want to know about Reich. I mean, it's it, say it's wrong a, it, about a lot of stuff I said, but it's a primitive construction. It's like uh, wood and it's layers so, of organic and inorganic material. In, yeah, in, 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 uh constructed in layers and then made into a box that you can sit in, um, and apparently it's supposed to increase, almost like the Integratron, it's supposed to increase the, um, gather the orgone and and uh, infuse your body with it. Uh, um, William S. Burroughs swore by it, uh, and the, the Cloudbuster is based sort of on the same uh, principle, except what it did was, um, if you see that picture, in the, I actually went to Organon and, and went to his lab and saw the Cloudbuster that he had there, and I saw his grave, um, what happened was when he would take these tubes and put them in a, a well or a source of, of water, 
uh, running water or it's a, or well water. And he said that if you um, they were attached to a bunch of tubes, it looks like it looks like some kind of you know uh, space gun. He actually called it the space gun when he was yeah. saying he was battling UFOs with it. Um, God, I wish you could see him in a certain area of the atmosphere. <laughs> it would it would cause clouds to form. Trevor Constable, who's another uh, UFO contactee. Um, got very heavily into uh, Reich's stuff and worked with the Cloudbuster. And there's videos of him supposedly out in the ocean um, getting uh, getting results with this Cloudbuster. There's another guy in Oregon. Do you remember his name, Adam? I can't remember mm-hmm. his name now. Is that Jerome Eden? No, no. There was another guy in Oregon. Oh, I know. Was, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I was doing some of the same stuff, and I apparently, as uh, I read at one point, that he was, was hired by the Israeli government to cause rain in Israel, and he claimed that it worked. So I don't. I'm. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I met him once. I'm, I'm sure he'd be pissed if I didn't. If he hears. Yeah, this, he but. he has. Can't remember his name, but he has a compound out near. Uh, Ashland, Oregon, and they put on symposiums and stuff there, and you can actually go and climb into an orgone accumulate. Of course, anybody can make their own uh, yeah, orgone accumulator. Yeah. So you can go download the plans to make your own accumulator if you want to. That's what you're saying. It's it's easy. Yeah. It's like Greg said. It's just, what is it, or, uh, organic material with inorganic material? Yeah, there's like steel with, wool and and regular wool and cotton and you know you just you, you make them into these make, panels, seal you make them. Make a few layers, yeah. And uh, supposedly, if you sit in there, you you the, it's supposed to help you one with your health and two maybe with uh, uh, psychological problems of because uh, he said that a lot of these problems came from a blockage of orgone flow through the human body. It's um, it's almost like. Uh, Scientology, you know, the uh, psych- psychological armoring or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. the um, going clear, I believe, um, the machine mm-hmm. that you hold on to, um, which is slipping my mind right now. It's weird how Scientology, we keep bringing it back up and we keep tying back into it again. <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit. I wouldn't I wouldn't put uh, Reich in the same thing as Scientology, but... No, 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 not at all. I, I, like, I... James DeMeo is the name of the guy. Yeah, right. In yeah. Oregon. I don't know if he's in Oregon anymore, but uh, that was the name of the guy. If you look at him, D-E-M-E-O. D-E, he's, either, you know. he's either in Oregon or he's not alive anymore. He's been around for a while. Yeah. I, I met him at a uh, Society for Scientific Exploration meeting in uh, 2000. Nice guy. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was going to go out there and check that out at some point, but I never did. And it was in San Diego. Jacques Vallée was there at that year too. Very, 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 uh, very, very, very weird and wonderful gathering. Have we? Uh, we didn't talk about Lee Crandall yet, have we? No. Let's let's talk about Lee Crandall, and then we'll we'll probably wrap it up. There's probably one or two more things I'll ask you. Lee Crandall was supposedly the first person to catch a ride to Venus, correct? Uh, according to Lee Crandall, he was the first uh, human ever <laughs> to. Uh... <laughs> To go to the planet Venus. So, <laughs> <laughs> you see that? Have you seen that film of him, Adam? <laughs> go ahead and talk about it, Greg. <laughs> well, you you know more about the background of Lee Crandall, but I was working in post production for the longest time. This is up online now, um, but if you look up Lee Crandall online, there's film of him. I guess it was somebody who's trying to do a story. You know, the story of what happened to Lee Crandall. 
it's film of him sitting in his trailer park house in probably in Southern California somewhere. And this, <laughs> the guy comes to the door. This guy in a nice suit comes to the door. And you only see him from the back. And he sits down in the trailer home with Lee that Kratz would, and talk for a while. That would huh? be Brother Baku. Okay. Sat down, sits down with him, talks for a while. Crandall looks like overjoyed. He's got this beatific look on his face. And then you know, the the guy tells him something, and he says, and you see it, and it's a silent too. There was no no sound on this. He like puts his finger up, like okay, just a minute, and he writes a little note, and he puts it down, and then he follows the guy out the door, and then there's a cut to the note. It says, "What's it, Fo dear folks, gone to Venus, all is well, Lee." <laughs> <laughs> I love that little piece of film. And I think there's actually sound film of him actually uh, giving a talk at uh, one, you know, giving a talk about his experiences. Yeah. He's a, he, he's an odd character. <laughs> it's one of those, it's kind of a lame uh, <laughs> thing. <laughs> he put out some type of book and actually you can find it on the uh, web and it has a photo you know, a photo of Lee and also of brother uh, Baco, who looks like, uh, who knows, some guy in a, uh, looks typically human in a leisure suit. I don't know. Lee wouldn't got a photo of <laughs> his uncle or something, but, and Lee Crandall looks like he's, uh, I'm looking at his photo now. He looks like he's a uh, 17 year old dude. <laughs> who knows how he got onto this whole, uh, Thing. And, of course, he had an outlandish story of traveling to uh, Venus, and he was treated like royalty there, basically. It's, it's, uh, I don't, it's one of the more outlandish uh, stories in uh, contactee uh, lore, which is saying a lot. Let's see. Don't worry, I can edit this. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> In the 2003 post-it UFO updates, the sometimes contrary contactee Ray Stanford noted that, uh, what do you say, Lee Crandall delivered a half-used bar of ivory soap with white chicken feathers pressed into it to his publishers and told them it was a spare piece of Brother Baco's Venusian spaceship made of, quote, magnetized white dove feathers given in consolation of your spines not being sufficiently crystallized as to enable you to see the approach and approach the spaceship personally. Do I need to read that? That's some deep shit, man. This <laughs> <laughs> um, book, I think... Uh, uh, Crandall was in training to be a chiropractor, so a lot of the book is spiced up with uh, like human anatomy compared to Venusian anatomy. So <laughs> that was his uh, uh, experience base of, uh, I think, you know, attending uh, uh, instruction to be a chiropractor. And so he interwove that with the rest of, you know, his book, which is probably more like a pamphlet. I don't know if I ever read the whole thing, but what? why in the heck did you bring up Lee Crandall? He's one of the... Because uh... he was just so far out there, and he was the first person that ever got a ride to <laughs> Venus. 
You know, how oh, many well, people can true. say I'm the first guy to go to Venus? And plus, he's got a story in here. Lots of people can say that. Well, yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody can say that they were the first person to go to Venus. But, you know. But he said it first. Yeah, he said it first. But he keeps having um, this encounter with this guy in, br- in a brown suit. And then there's a thing in here where he wakes up in yeah. the middle of the night, like at 11 o'clock at night. And there's a guy knocking on his door. On August 17th, Crandall was awakened in the middle of the night by his doorbell when he asked, who the hell is calling at such an ungodly hour? A calm, mellow voice replied, this is your friendly. Crandall opened the door to discover another similarly brown-suited stranger, both wearing brown suits. A handsome fellow around 35 years old named Brother Boko, who explained that he'd come on behalf of Brother Tahoe, or Teho, or whatever, <laughs> the other brown-suited disappearing know. guy. Boko informed Crandall that, that his mission was to deliver him to Venus. However, Crandall wasn't too keen at that particular moment to travel all the way to Venus in the middle of the night. So he declined the offer and Brother Boko predictably vanished. <laughs> they Well, they had to work Crandall for a while. They met, you know, he had few and... Uh, uh, you guys are nuts. Three, Leave me alone. <laughs> two or three encounters with these guys and eventually he broke down, yeah. Um, Yeah, let me read that first passage from the book. That's probably what got you into this. Southern California native Lee Crandall was the first human ever to visit Venus, dot, 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 according to Lee Crandall. This momentous occasion occurred on August 31st, 1954, when he was treated to the requisite spaceship trip, dot, dot, dot. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Let us begin at the beginning. Then we go into Lee Crandall's story. Yeah, it's just somebody knocks at your door in the middle of the night and says, let's go to Venus. And you're like, no, nah, I don't want to go right now. I'm too tired. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's just such an odd story. <laughs> well, I mean, I could see that if I woke up just after a nap, you know. Yeah, I, as as uh, <laughs> as uh, Orfeo Angelucci said in a documentary I saw him in sometime in the 80s or early 90s, um, he said at some point he realized that he had dreamed all these things and they came up through his subconscious as visions. That that was his explanation later. He didn't mean that they were a, a, any less significant. He just said, well, they weren't physical. And I think that some of the contactees um, probably thought that, but um, they didn't want to kind of let on that it wasn't actually a physical contact because that doesn't sell books and get people to listen to you. But uh, Orfeo said this years later, like, you know, 20, 30 years after the contactee uh, era. He claimed that he was Neptune in a former life, right? That guy? Orfeo? Yeah. This this book will pr- might throw some people for a loop if they're uh, – not quite knowing what to expect, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> they're presented. It's a who's who. So you see Lee Crandall there and it looks like, you know, you're just giving a uh, kind of a dry accounting of the events. But then, yeah, we're a lot of many of the passages were being kind of tongue in cheek and <laughs> humorous. So uh, yeah. some people might go. uh what the hell's going on here? Are these guys serious? This sounds serious. No, this one isn't serious. Which this is, is why totally I asked ridiculous. you at the very beginning of the show <laughs> what your guys' stance was on all this. Like, I, I have oh. a pretty good idea where you guys are coming from, but I still got to put it out there. So Yeah. Let me, let me answer uh, uh, deflected to Greg on that. There's diff- There's categories, you know. 
with these guys. They're the obvious hoaxers and con men. But then there was, you know, a certain amount of them who actually believed or had some type of authentic experience, you know, then there's, and I don't know what the percentages are, but and there are some that were obviously delusional or crazy. Then you have people who had these authentic experiences and shared them with, you know, and they got a fan base and it was like, well, I need to like to keep my, keep this thing rolling. Maybe I'll embellish a little bit here and there. And then, you know, like Orfeo Angelucci, uh, you start interweaving, uh, things that were happening on a, uh, subconscious or imaginary level. And, uh, you know, perhaps those were real to him to a certain extent. So there's all kinds of layers to this, uh, Experience? Do I think any of them actually had encounters with flying saucers? Who, you know, how the hell would <laughs> how the hell would I know? I know some of some of it was pretty hokey and fake, but you know, who am I to say that some of these uh, people didn't have actual encounters? I don't know. I, I find it more, you know, it's just more interesting as a uh, sociological phenomena movement like the beat movement or the hippies or whatever yeah movements you have just all the interesting uh characters that were all part of this yeah that's that's the way that i saw it too it's more of um more of like a historical you know like a footnote historical thing for the most part i i don't i didn't come to this book expecting to read it to get, you know, information. I, I don't believe that these people had these encounters for the most part. It's more, and I didn't come to it looking for that. It's more of just this snapshot of this period of history of these interesting characters and these interesting yeah. people. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's a fun read. It's, it's nice to this. It's, it's all small little sections. So it's easy to go through. It's just, there's so much in here. There's so many people and, you know, you guys did great little snapshots of all of them. And it's just, it's this like little window into that period of time. Like ufology now, it sucks. It's not, I don't pay attention to it anymore. This was funny, humorous. There's some neat, you know, neat little stories that are in here. Um, just the variety and stuff and you know, just how it all worked out. Um, the last thing I'm going to ask, we briefly touched on it sooner, was was there was there a period where like when it all went from alien contactees to dark sinister alien abductions was it a quick cutoff or was there kind of like a transition period of a few years cuz i growing up i remember close encounters coming out and it seemed like after close encounters things just started to take a weird turn that's where it went and by weird i i don't mean you know i meant like it, it became more dark and sinister and more about abductions and implants and things like that it seems like that's the age where like the dawning of bud hopkins and stuff started to take off or was it was it as like okay this is done and then the next like a couple years later this is when this transition picks up <laughs> yeah, Great. <laughs> and crickets. Oh God damn it! <laughs> I was just talking a, quite a bit. It's your turn. Okay, let me let me uh, <laughs> let me see if I can tackle this and sound um, uh, coherent. Um, I don't think there was a like a cutoff period or anything like that because there still were contacty type people operating. No new ones really came out probably after the 1960s. Um, but in 1963, I think, you had the Betty and Barney Hill thing. 
Now that was basically the shot across the bow of you know modern new modern abduction stuff, and that took a while to catch on. I mean, it, it was there were there were other abductions and things like that, few and far between. Um, and these people actually got you know messages, and and uh, some of them got messages of the, the same things that the contactees used to get. But it wasn't this you know kind of peace and light. You know, why come come with us on our ship, and we'll eat vegetarian food, eat fr- and drink fruit. Yeah, juice. they're all offered a tasty um, beverage too. All the old contactees are always offered some kind of a drink mm-hmm. or something. Or here's like a here's a here's a space waffle. Eat that. Go ahead, enjoy it. It's good for you. Come on. You know, yeah, I would I, I would put an interlude in there with Betty and Barney Hill. They really uh, came to the fore or into uh, popular consciousness, I think, at least for me, like in 1974 or five, when there was a uh, made for TV movie. Yeah. Yeah. Interrupted Journey or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. I mean, the book was called Interrupted Journey. But yeah, the, the book, that happened in 63, I think. And the book uh, by Dr. Benjamin Simon. No, Benjamin Simon was the uh, person that uh, did the um, regressions. But uh, the book came out in 66, I think. And that's when it popped into public consciousness. Um, and that percolated for a while. And then, you know, of course, the the dam broke with um, with uh, Missing Time by Bud Hopkins and then furly, further broke with uh, obviously with uh, um, Communion by Strieber. So that sort of ushered in the modern area of uh, abductism. But, you know, in the, in the midst of all this abductee stuff in literature, Carla Turner's stuff uh, um, and uh, Hopkins and other people are still messages of environmental disaster and get your, get your act together or the earth's going to, uh, is going to disappear or or be uninhabitable. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a constant you know um, a theme or leitmotif or whatever through alien contact is you know um, this godlike kind of uh, uh, take care of the planet or you're not going to have a planet to take care of anymore. So and that's been going on since the beginning. For you know I think the messages in the 50s were atomic weapons and then sometime in the 70s as ecological consciousness came to the fore. Um, more of the messages were about uh, the planet being in trouble. So um, um, I guess that would kind of be the and, and you you mentioned that earlier, Rojan, about uh, the the sort of whatever the zeitgeist of the time is. Oh, that was Joe, um, but yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Right. I'm sorry, that's yeah, all right. Um, yeah, it's, just, uh, it it seems what, to whatever what the messages are. It seems to reflect whatever's going on at the time. Which is, yeah. I'm kind of curious now that we've got with with the political craziness that's happening, not necessarily just in America, but all over the world. I'm wondering, you know, where the next phase of this of this storyline is going to go, and what's going to happen here, you know, for people who pay attention to this stuff. Because um, I, it's it's like I'm waiting for the next phase of ufology to hit because we are we've already gone through the Space Brothers, we've gone through the sinister dark alien stuff. And I'm wondering where the whole phenomena as as it's being presented is going to go to next and how it's going to be reflected next and what we're going to see. So, you know, it's uh, it's just a curiosity of mine because we're, we're living in like we're, we're, the times that we're living in right now are definitely extreme. Everybody says that in their time period, though. You know, it's one of those kind of things. But um, yeah, of course they do. Yeah. And in a certain way, they're right. You know, everybody's right in their own way. But. I don't know. It's just, it's just like now we're living in a time where technology is so rapidly advancing, coupled with everything that's going on with uh, mm-hmm. with uh, politics and be whatever team that you're on or what have you. It's a very it's a very rapidly changing time. So 
where does this all go now? You know, I, but gone are the days of hot Venusian, big boobed, blonde haired Nordic <laughs> chicks showing up saying, hey, we need you to come to our planet to help us repopulate. We're running out of men or something like that. Um, <laughs> Those were the good old days. Yeah, yeah. it never happens anymore, um, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> well, at least not to us. Yeah, no kidding. We've been recording for about two hours now. I've at this point probably broken it up into two separate shows. Uh, so okay, this cool. is usually where I give you know the shout out points. So uh, Adam, I'll have you go first. Uh, you don't have a podcast or anything, but you've got your website and you got all kinds of other books out there as well. So where can people find mm-hmm. you and find what you've done? Uh boy, I got a few different uh, websites. One is if. Uh, people are interested in Discordianism. There's historiadiscordia.com. Uh, um, for this book, A is for Adamski, The Golden Age of UFO Contactees. It's go to Amazon to buy a copy. I also started, well, I've had one blog going on for years called Untamed Dimensions. And I also started a more UFO-centric blog called Chasing UFOs, which, uh, you know, just do a, a web search, you can find those. So, yeah, that's the main, uh, any of my books, uh, Amazon.com and also AdamGoRightly.com. I'm assuming you have something on the uh, horizon, as always? Mm-hmm, I do. <laughs> I There's a uh, UFO disinformation book. I mean, that's an easy way to describe it. That's completed, and uh, hopefully it'll be showing up sometime soon. Moving over to you, Greg, uh, where can people find you in your works? Uh, the podcast is Radio Mysterio, radiomysterioso.com, R-A-D-I-O-M-I-S-T-E-R-I-O-S-O, spelled like it is in Spanish since I'm from Southern California. Um, that's got my interviews, latest interviews. Um, and just, if you type my name in on, on, uh, Amazon books will come up like this latest one, uh, A is for Adamski, my one before that, which was, um, it defies language, uh, project beta, weird California and, uh, uh, wake up down there, which was the excluded middle anthology. So all that'll come up in addition to some, some guy that apparently is a, like a, a, a father's rights advocate and a um, <laughs> and the other one is a a former New York <laughs> Jets quarterback. <laughs> that are oh Greg no, what, one of them is a Sports Illustrated writer. Oh okay, no, but there was also a New York Jets uh, uh, football player as well. Anyway, um, yeah. just yeah, just, just type just, in my uh, name and UFO and it'll come up. I had just recently, uh, Lauren Coleman with. Uh, posted something and he tagged Greg Bishop, SI Sports Illustrated, and I told him that's not our Greg Bishop. <laughs> Maybe he'll be interested in uh, crypto Bigfoots or whatever. Who knows? That's, uh, yeah, that's uh, pretty, pretty easy to find my stuff. And uh, yeah, uh, links to other stuff I do in books and all that are at Ready Mysterio. So um, t-shirts all that all that junk i have actually uh and i've given you credit for it every time i've been on several different podcasts talking about project beta and 
the whole thing. Someone will contact me and say, hey, do you, you seem pretty knowledgeable about this. Do you want to come on my show and talk about it? And I've been on a couple of different podcasts. And every time I go on there, I'm like, well, first off, all the information that I'm getting. So if, if you want to follow up on what I'm talking about, you need to go out and buy this book from Greg Bishop. And it goes into great detail in there. But I've I've used that book uh, several times now as a reference point to go other other podcasts and talk about stuff that you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Sure. But yeah, I've always credited yeah, you and I've uh, also tagged you. And I'm like, hey, I was on this show and I gave you a mention and blah, 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 blah. So I see those and I appreciate it. Yeah. At least, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not plagiarizing you or what have you. But um, <laughs> oh, no, I, I totally appreciate that because that happens a lot. Now, yeah, well, people will say, did you know that this happened? It's like, well, that came straight out of my book. I wish, wish you'd say where you got it from. But, you know, you, yeah. can't, you can't really control that. But I appreciate it when people do. So thanks so much. I always go on and say, hey, uh, I got this from this book here. It's still available. You can go find it. This is the author, blah, blah, blah. And I have a couple of much coveted copies of the excluded middle that uh, are still sitting over here next to me. They're, uh, I, I know how rare they are. And uh, you gave those to me when I was down in Texas. And um Oh yeah, yeah. They're they're very valuable property of mine, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I wish someday that you would find a way to get these all scanned into PDF and put them up on a site somewhere so people could download them. Because um, there's just such a rich history of the the, the the magazine didn't go for very long, but what you covered ten was years. What, was it ten years? Really? I thought it was shorter than to, that. Nine years, ninety one to two thousand. How many issues did you put out? Only nine. Oh, so you put out one issue a year. <laughs> yeah, that's what it turned out to be. I mean, yeah, we'd go for a year and a half with nothing, or sometimes we put out, it was supposed to be quarterly, but it never was, yeah. just because it was it was self-published. That's how I met Go Rightly. I mean, he, he wrote to me and said, can I write something for your magazine? I was like, yeah, well, do, please do. And he, he um, it, it didn't quite happen like that. Okay. <laughs> how did it happen i don't even remember actually uh robert larson contacted me just to start oh, a dialogue okay. okay you guys need to archive those and, and get them scanned into pdf <laughs> and put them up somewhere where people can go find them and download them yeah there's not too many issues i could do it i mean if, if you want to see what was in the magazine just get uh, wake up down there but um yeah the, no the... that that's not all the uh yeah you need to no, no, that, that wasn't everything was in the magazine. It yeah. was twice right. as long. I mean, I left out the news reports and things, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, Even the ads yeah, are so. funny. You've got some funny ads in these, too. You know, it's just. Yeah, everything was just a sense of humor. You know, we were not totally 100% serious about it. Uh, well, you couldn't tell when we were totally 100% serious, which is the way we liked it. Do you still have all the issues or are they just floating around? Out yes. There? Yeah, I you still need, have them. I, you need to scan those and get them in PDF. Just just put them up there for somebody to download. I'm going to bug you about it okay. until you tell me to fuck off. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, please do. Okay, no, I fuck read off. one of them <laughs> while we were while we were in the show. I actually went and grabbed one off the shelf. That's where I read that Sunra uh, obituary from. Exactly. That's like that's not going to be in your book. You know, there's 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 this stuff in these magazines that it's again it's another snap out moment in time of something that was out there. Oh yeah. You know, and it this, was good stuff. Yeah, there's some good yeah. stuff in here. You know, you, you you really need to do that just just for historical purposes or what have you. You know, just to just to put it out there. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll I shut up about it, but you know. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm gonna let you guys go, but do me a favor, hang out for one second uh, after I click the end button here. Um, thank you both for coming on here. This has been a blast talking to you. This was. I can't say how cool this is to have you guys both on at the same time, and the fact that you both collaborated on a book like this. Um, as I was saying earlier or off the air, it was like, you know, you've got, you got, you guys could not have made a more perfect storm to come out with something like this. I, I hope to see you guys collaborate on stuff again in the future. 
because it's just the right mix of snarkiness and historical value. So, and having you both here at the same time is great. That's your opinion. (laughs) (laughs) It is my opinion. (laughs) So thank you very much, gentlemen. Hopefully other people think that. Yeah. It's a great book. You're welcome. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us on too. Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. Or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. Hi there, I'm Logan. And I'm Lindsay. And we host the new podcast, Folklore on the Rocks, where we talk about folklore and lesser-known creatures, cryptids, and monsters from around the world. When we say lesser-known, we mainly mean that we won't be covering creatures like Bigfoot or Nessie or Chupacabra, just because they're discussed so often, and the world just has so many other awesome options to draw from. Every two weeks, we'll be diving deep into the legends and culture that surround a specific creature, and getting a bit tipsy as we do so. But don't worry. We do our research sober. (laughs) On the weeks in between, we'll be narrating and discussing folktales. So some will be historical folklore from the regions that our creatures are from, and some will be more like modern folklore, like no sleeps and creepypastas. You can find out more about us on our website, FolkloreOnTheRocks.com, on Facebook and Instagram at FolkloreOnTheRocks, and Twitter at at FolkloreRocks! So come on, grab a drink, join us, and let's dig deep together. Well, that looks like it'll do it for this week's episode. Big thanks to Greg and Adam and Joe for sticking around for longer than the usual hour-long format. I hadn't talked to Greg and Adam in a long time, and then having them both together on the show at the same time, we just had so much to talk about, and we were having such a good time that I just said, hey, let's keep on rolling with this as long as we possibly can. Um, I did manage to find the Utah Saints remix of Something Good is Gonna Happen, and God, that came out back in 1992, so that's what I'm gonna close the show out with for that little Kate Bush snippet. All of you old schoolers out there might hear it and go, oh yeah, I remember this song. I did do an appearance last night on the Jake and Tom Conquer the World podcast. Way back when we'd said we're not going to be doing the This Year in Fecal Matter shows anymore, they were like, hey, can we take it over? Can can we do that kind of a show? And I said, yeah, sure, go right ahead, you know? And then Tom was like, um, will you come on the show with us and do the show? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll come on and do it. And I kind of forgot about it. So the new year rolled around and Tom sent me over a message saying, hey, you want to come on and do the show with us? So I went on last night and did it. And we, uh, if you're an old school fan of that kind of show, and if you liked that episode, we covered the uh, Dave Matthews band because that's kind of what got it all started for this one and covered a few other things. Some of the ones we covered last year on last year's show or what have you. So if you're hungry for that kind of an episode, while that sounds disgusting to say, um, it will be posting up pretty soon. And if you follow us on Facebook, 
Facebook or on Twitter or any of the social media platforms or what have you. I'm sure I'll post a link for that show when it goes up on there. Um, Lobo's, uh, Lobo's computer appears to be fixed. We used it last week to record the intro and closing of the last episode, and it still seems to be holding together. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we should be back to normal next week or whatever normal is for us. So uh, all goes well. We'll be, you know, back here rolling again next week with another episode. Having said all of that, this is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit.